bring in burnout, replace. Bring in burnout, replace. Repeat as necessary. 50% of the teachers who we're training will not stay in the profession for more than five years because we've already burnt them out, we've driven them out, they're taking that quick option. Hello from Education International in Brussels. This is Ed Voices, a podcast of global education news and advocacy. EI is more than 400 teacher and educator unions and professional associations in 173 countries representing 32 million members. Here's your host. Hello, it's Martin Henry, Research Coordinator at Education International, and today I'm going to be speaking to Professor Howard Stevenson from Nottingham University, who we have talked to before, but um, we're on a new topic. And this time, we're talking about a public hearing that took place as a part of the ETUS work with the European Commission, which was on education trade unions for the teaching profession. Hi, Howard. Hi, Martin. So, what we're looking at today is what was the origin of this study and, and what brought you to this work and what does it mean for us in terms of the teaching profession? I've been working with the European teacher unions on this issue. They were involved in the original sort of framing of the piece of work. And I think, in a sense, what they were absolutely recognising was two things. One is the huge challenges that face teachers and which are intensifying. So if you look at the sorts of issues that we currently face in Europe, you know, we're living in very complex and, and actually uncomfortable times. Schools have to deal with all these issues. And of course, when we say schools have to deal with these issues, what we really mean is teachers and the other educators who, who work in schools. It's, you know, it's the people in schools who are having to respond to these issues and the increasing complexity and, and all those challenges. And how do you support teachers and other education professionals so that they can do the work that they want to do uh, in these difficult times? And a recognition, actually, that education unions have a really important role to play in supporting teachers in what are sometimes called the sort of the professional side of their work. Lots of people, when they think of unions, they think about the work that unions do, very important work on pay and pensions and working conditions. For teachers and other educators, there's a whole complex web of other activities that they're involved in as part of their work, which go beyond those pay and pension type issues, but which are really important to them, which make a big difference to how effective they can be in doing their work, and which they need support and the right working conditions to help them do that work effectively. So the issue, the sort of second part of this then was, well, how, what's the role of education unions supporting teachers and other education professionals in that, in, as it were, the sort of professional dimensions of their work. That's the project. How do, how do education unions, what's the work that they do to support teachers and to meet the professional needs of teachers? Well, you actually take us back to work that we've done together before, which is your organising um, teaching piece yeah. of work that yeah. you did with Nina Bassia, because there you laid out seven principles for union renewal, one of which was the professional and the industrial. And it was really interesting for me at the hearing yesterday to see how 
the principles that you've brought together in this piece of work build upon the previous principles and give us a focus in a very um, clear microscopic sort of way of looking at one of those principles and you've unraveled some ideas of professionalism and a new professionalism, if yeah, we yeah. bring in one yeah. of the questions that came forward, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that gives a way of thinking about strengthening the capacity of education trade unions to represent teachers' professional needs in social dialogue, which is yeah. the byline for the piece of research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that? In that work we did with yourselves, we talked about this notion of connecting the industrial and the professional. It's about recognising that there are many dimensions to teachers' work. There are questions of pay, pensions, I've mentioned these things, working conditions. But there's issues about control, autonomy, professional judgment. How much space do I have as a professional to determine for myself the sorts of strategies that I want to use in my classroom? Do I have that space to exercise that professional judgment? Or, as I think is, is happening increasingly, teachers are finding that that space is being closed down that their scope to exercise professional judgment is being diminished, that uh, there is more and more control over what they teach and how they teach. So my argument is these are not sort of either or issues. They're equally important to teachers. If I'm a teacher in my classroom, you know, I want control and agency, if you like, to use that language, over all aspects of my work. So it's about, in a sense, recognising that those professional industrial issues are, are equally important in terms of me and my work. They're also completely inseparable. Look, what we know is that workload for teachers is sort of rising inexorably almost across the globe. You know, because we're, in this, because we're, because we're turning education into a sort of global race, uh, you know, driven by PISA league tables and, and you can never be good enough, you, you know, you've always got to be getting better. The sort of consequence of that culture of never good enough is that you can always do more. You know, it's you're not good enough, right? You need to work harder. You need to do more. So what we're seeing as teachers is workloads sort of just inexorably being driven up. But they're being driven up by things like reporting requirements, the pressures of testing, you know, the pressures being placed on the curriculum. The professional issue about how do I assess students, what's the most effective way to assess students, what's the way that's going to most effectively support learning, the professional issues impact massively on the workload issues. Now I think it's completely artificial to argue about separating those and to so somehow say what, you know, one's an industrial issue, to use sort of trade union language, one's an industrial issue and the other's a professional issue, to that teacher in that classroom who's overworked really struggling to keep up but feeling completely sort of demoralized really by the way that the system is telling them what to do and how to do it they're not distinguishing between industrial and professional issues it's how they experience work what they're experiencing I think is a, a sort of loss of agency a loss of control this is the sort of deprofessionalization that is going on that I think teachers are being de-skilled what I want I can do two things I can do three things. Right? I can sort of just do nothing and hang on, keep my head down and hang on, and hope that I can survive. I can do what actually we see many, many, many teachers doing, and I can quit. Right? And all that training, all that experience, all that expertise, I can say, do you know what? 
I can't deal with this, it's not worth the candle, the only way I can look after myself is to get out. And you know, in the country where I come from, in England, we're seeing teachers you know, getting out at a phenomenal rate. Chronic, inefficient, dreadful waste of expertise and talent and energy and commitment. But one option is to quit, and we're seeing teachers do that in very large numbers. There has to be an alternative to quitting. There has to be an alternative to just keeping your head down and trying to hang on by your fingernails. And I think that is about pushing back, frankly. But I can't push back on my own. There's no conceivable way I can push back on my own. The only way I can recapture my individual agency around my work, in my view, is if I work with my colleagues and, as it were, we develop a collective agency. By working together, by acting collaboratively, by organising, we can begin to change things. And the vehicle to do that is the union. You know, there is an organisation that already exists which is independent, democratic, collective. You know, it, unions are uh, you know, large organisations, in, in certainly in the European study I've been in, just involved in, you know, across Europe, unions are large organisations representing the vast majority of teachers. So they have, in a sense, the, the vehicle exists for teachers to push back against the relentless work, pressure, attack on their professional judgment. What we have to do is channel that energy through the union to make sure that that professional voice is, is placed right back at the centre of educational debate. So this is not about the individual show pony running a situation on Twitter where they're talking about a particular type of teaching. This is about collective action where teachers are getting together in professional learning communities. You talked about reading groups that the union have established yesterday, established by the NEU in England, about actually making sure that the professionals have the autonomy and the professional ability to, as you say, push back. And I'd just like us to look into this professional radicalism for a second, because I think that that's what you're framing. And I'd like you to give you an opportunity to talk about one of the things that you theoretically underpin your study with, yep. which is the difference between the business capital model and the professional capital model. Because you are actually talking about a gear shift here away from the new public management and tailorism of earlier decades into another way of thinking. Right, so in the report that we have produced for the uh, European Trade Union Committee for Education, we draw on the work of Andy Hargreaves and Michael Fuller in their book Professional Capital, in which they present a sort of an either-or in terms of the way they see policy relating to teachers developing. You know, in a sense, they're very simplistic models, but they work to sort of clearly illustrate what the choices are that are in front of us and that we see. So in the, in the report, we began by saying, we can all of us agree that we want to attract high quality entrants into the teaching profession. We want to create the working conditions in teaching which retain those people in the job and allow them to develop the skills because those skills take you know, time to develop. This is a really sophisticated, uh, technical, complex job. Uh, it takes time to learn it. So we want to retain people in the role, 
and we need to think about how do we develop people in the role so that actually they do you know, become the educators that they really want to be. I think everywhere you could get agreement around that notion of attracting people, retaining them in the work, and, uh, and then developing teachers so that they can be the really effective teachers that they want to be. Where you don't get agreement is how do you go about doing that. And the, the model presented by Hargreaves and Fullen in which they distinguish between a business capital model and a professional capital model, in a sense highlight the choices about how to respond to those issues. So the business capital model really sees teaching as you know, something not very complicated, something that doesn't require a lot of skill. You can train people for it quickly, and very importantly, you can train them for it cheaply. You know, you can drill people to do things in particular ways, and if they can just repeat that on an ongoing basis, then, you know, that sort of delivers, and I use that word advisedly, that sort of delivers the education that, uh, that they want. You can look for opportunities to replace people with technology, because technology becomes a really important way of driving down the costs of teaching in this business capital model. You know, one would have to say, that if our education systems were to move in a direction where they were much more driven by the profit motive, I mean we see that now but we might see more of it in the future, then you would expect that business capital model to be much more common. The danger is, what it does, is what I was talking about early with the retention issues, it creates a, a sort of bring in, burn out, replace. Bring in, burn out, replace. Bring in, burn out, replace repeat as necessary you know that that's the model that we see and that's actually exactly what we see in in for example England I think where 50% of teachers who qualify will not stay in the profession more than five years right 50% of the teachers who we're training will not stay in the profession for more than five years because we've already burnt them out we've driven them out they're taking that quick option now the professional capital model is to say, look, teaching is a very complex task. It takes a long time to acquire the skills. We need to think very carefully how we train people into the work, uh, how we, uh, some people would take issue with that use of the word train actually, but you know, how do we educate, how do we develop people to be teachers? How do we maintain that development on an ongoing basis because it absolutely is, you know, you and I both have backgrounds in teaching, you know, I, I sometimes get a bit nervous when I think what I was like when I very first started teaching, you know, these, these things take a long time of a sort of combination of professional learning, developing experience, you know, your collaborations with the people who you work with, it takes time. And of course what we've got is a very fast system. And actually, I think what we need to do is develop a much slower system. One that allows people time, doesn't expect people to be super high performing instantly on the job within the first three weeks, but recognises that people need the time and the space to develop. Actually, you develop those people and keep them in the profession. And that is a much more efficient, to use that language of efficiency, that's a much more efficient way of managing the teaching profession than burning people out and having to constantly replace. Um, so that's the choice, in a sense, that Hargreaves and Fulham pose. 
and which is sort of opening up, I think, before us. The conference yesterday was about how do education unions support meeting the professional needs of teachers. We need to recognise there are, there are these sort of two broad, different approaches. Uh, and whilst we may very strongly favour one, because it's much more likely to generate positive results uh, for students, actually, and a much better experience for teachers who work in that system, there are actually very strong pressures to adopt the other approach. And of course we see it, and you talked about you know, that sort of notion of privatisation uh, that we see in our education systems. So that's there, and, and I think that notion of collective agency and pushing back is about how do we, as a, you know, as a profession, as educators, how do we assert that sort of collective agency to make sure that actually the policies that we're adopting, the methods that we're using, adopt that much more serious, much more long-term, much more sensible, sustainable, high quality, but high investment. This needs money you know, to make it work properly, and that's the issue. But how do we make that happen rather than the sort of pressure which is always going to be there for the politicians to do this on the cheap and you know how can we cut corners and how can we do this quicker and look we've got teacher shortages because we're burning people out so we need to get people into the profession quicker do we really need to train them can't we just get them on the job and train them on the job that's the that's the choice in front of us and the challenge is how I think as a profession do we make sure that we're making the choices that are you know in the interest of the teachers who work in the system, but which of course is ultimately in the best interests of the young people who are educated in our schools and colleges. So we've got a choice between an approach which leads to a dystopic future of automatons in front of our classrooms, or one that looks at the professional standards that teachers have, and we're doing some work on this with UNESCO, and, and develops people who are able through creative thinking and problem solving to work out classrooms that are discursive mixes. And it's interesting you talk about our first years as teachers because I caught up with an old friend of mine, Maggie McKenzie, this weekend. And we were talking about taking a class of year 10s who were 14 year olds out to St. Luke's in Auckland to read the shopping center as a semiotic text. Now, as an older teacher, she mentored me through that process mm. She opened the learning and she gave us that understanding of how we might work together across subjects and in an integrated way in order to change the situation. But to do that, we needed the school to give us time. Yeah. We needed them to give us professional learning and development support. And I'm just going to come to our last point in this podcast and, and ask you to just elucidate for us the five union strategies that enable those sorts of things to happen. Okay, so in the report uh, that we've produced for uh, ETUCE and which is on their website, we identified five broad strategies that, that we saw unions adopting in the study. So we're, we're reporting what unions are doing, but in a, in a way in a hope that other unions can look at that and sort of say, well, do you know what, that's sort of interesting. We could maybe learn from that. Maybe we could do some, something similar might work for us. So we identified these five strategies. And they work very differently in different contexts. Some of them might be really difficult in some contexts, frankly. Right, number one was looking at really the importance of what we often call social dialogue, 
but that includes negotiating, consulting, collective bargaining. It's the union representing teachers in those sorts of discussions with employers. Sometimes the outcome might be in the form of a contract, but in other cases there are different sorts of outcomes. But what we argued in the report is professional issues need to be part of that social dialogue. Right? It's not that social dialogue does pay in pensions and those professional issues are somewhere else. You know, you well know, if I want good access to professional development that isn't going to be eroded away, then I need a contract that protects the time for me to do that work. Exactly. Otherwise, it'll be squeezed into the you know, midnight hours and, and I'm doing it on my own time and my own money. So social dialogue and collective bargaining, really, really important. Second strategy was something we called educating the educators. It's, it's recognising that unions have always been involved in directly providing professional development to their members. And some people will say sometimes, but that's the employer responsibility. And it is the employer's responsibility. And the big part of the union's job is to make sure that the employer carries out that responsibility properly. But I think there'll always be a space for union-provided professional development. Because what we found in the study is it's distinctively different. It's got a different starting point. Its starting point is what the members want. The starting point isn't what is the ministry's agenda or what is the target that I've been told that I've got to hit. So of course, what teachers often experience when they get access to professional development is it doesn't reflect their needs. It's top down, it's imposed. Frankly, they often feel it's irrelevant to what they really want to do. What we found that union-provided professional development offers something different and it gives people a space and sometimes a space to talk about things in ways that they can't always feel they can talk about freely in their workplace. So there's something different about union-provided professional development. Strategy three, we talked about facilitating self-organising and you refer to the reading group uh, example and that's something I'm involved with with some teachers in England and these are young teachers uh, who sort of came to me and talked about setting up a reading group. These are teachers self-organising. They're frustrated at what passes for professional development in their place of work. Uh, that they're being encouraged to think in particular ways, that they're being told they have to do things in particular ways, that the professional development they get is all about delivering some other objective that isn't actually what they believe in. So they wanted a sort of space to think about other possibilities, accessing research that isn't the sort of research that is being fed into the education system currently as a sort of an orthodoxy and here's the evidence and you must do it this way. And, and these teachers are saying, do you know what, we think there are different ways of doing this. So we established the reading group. It's, it's teachers organising for themselves, which you might argue is actually old-fashioned basic trade unionism. But the point is they see the union as giving them their vehicle to do that self-organising. So, you know, these are young teachers organising through the union to just create these spaces where they have these conversations that they're not having anywhere else. They're not about pay or workload or whatever. They're about assessment. They're about you know, broad issues about education policy. What is education for? You know, really sort of fundamental questions that we should be asking ourselves all the time. But in this, you know, fast, fast, don't ask questions, get on with it system that we're you know, creating. People don't have the space to ask those questions. Strategy four, we talked about what we call sort of shaping the discourse. 
And this, again, is another sort of echo of the work we did with Education International. It's about recognising the really important role of the union in sort of framing the debates about what is good education, what does good teaching look like. There's no point in inviting teachers into sort of constructing solutions if they've got no opportunity to frame the question and the problem. You know, if somebody else has already decided what the problem is, it's not really helpful to get tied into identifying solutions to the wrong problem. And I think we see a lot of that in education. The problems are defined in particular ways by policymakers and teachers, the people doing the work and who really know what's going on, they actually aren't, you know, they're not privy to that discussion. They're not involved in those debates. So, you know, the powerful people in the system get to ask the big and important questions and then teachers get pulled in at the end to sort of say, well, how do we make this work? What we saw in the study is education unions have a really big and important role in shifting those narratives so that actually we're talking about you know a much more interesting and and uh, you know a set of questions that directly derive from teachers experience because teachers are the people doing the job and teachers are the people who know these things so that strategy four was about campaigning advocacy work call it what you will but it's about in a sense trying to define the issues in a in ways that are supportive of high quality public education for all. Um, and then the final strategy was, uh, we called it developing partnerships and alliances, because what we saw was lots of unions working in really interesting and creative ways with lots of other organisations to meet the professional needs of teachers. Now sometimes, in some cases, and it was really good way you could see it, this is unions working with employers, working with government, ministries, whoever, to better support the professional needs of teachers. And when that works well, it works really well. You know, unfortunately, there's lots of places where the unions are saying to us, you know, those employers won't work with us in that way. And, and you know, then your options are limited. Employers might be the partners, but we also saw universities, research institutes, civil society organisations. So the unions working with these sort of different organisations, and it, it's almost like it's able to amplify the way that it supports meeting the needs of teachers because it's like you know the classic thing that sometimes two and two makes more than four you know that we can generate synergies and we saw lots of examples of that so it, it, all really interesting examples of how unions are working in different ways to meet those professional needs of teachers we've taken us on a, a r extremely fascinating journey through the world of professionalism um, you've also got me thinking about the new rise and in interest in slow cooking. So I'm going to ask you, as a final question, what is your favourite slow-cooked dish? All food should be cooked slowly, even if it needs to be cooked quickly. Right? Because actually, slow cooking is an approach to how you cook, how you produce the raw ingredients, how you consume, and that's what... That's my favourite, slow cooking. It's, it's how you see everything that you do, rather than any one particular dish, which you'd rather put me on the spot about, Martin. Thank you very much. So that's what we need for teaching. Absolutely every ingredient dealt with in a slow and thoughtful fashion. Mine's Lancashire Hot Pot. Thank you, and that's us signing out. To get the latest global education news and advocacy, 
Subscribe to Ed Voices on your favorite podcast app or anytime on SoundCloud. And as always, tell a friend, spread the word, and please give us a review on iTunes. Thank you.